scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 2, 5, page 952 in the Pew Bible. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, it's great being with you guys. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, honestly, I would love to keep singing. I would love to keep um, hearing your word read. I would love to continue a liturgy that proclaims your forgiveness of us. Um, the character that you revealed of yourself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Father, the fact that you have said that you love to practice steadfast love and righteousness and justice on the earth and that you delight in those things. Father, we want to continue to be reminded who you are. As we are made more and more aware of our own frailty, Father, in very poignant ways in the last few weeks, we each are able to say we are glad we're here and we're glad to be together. We're glad that you have given us to each other. We're glad that you have spared us for another Sunday. We're glad that we're able to look at each other and hear each other's voices. Father, we're glad to hear the children singing and reciting the truths that are yours, that you have given to us. And they have become ours because you have made us one in Christ. Father, we struggle uh, believing. We don't just hear an offertory uh, sung from the words of Thomas, but our hearts almost blurt out those words at every turn of the service. We haven't seen you. But Father, because your spirit is with us, we can say also that we believe you and we thank you. Father, we fear death. We know that there are only two ways to get to you. One is through the veil of death and the other is through Jesus, your return. And Lord Jesus, we join our voices with the Apostle Paul as he writes to the Corinthians later on that we would rather that you would come back, Jesus, and we wouldn't die. But Lord Jesus, if you wait and we die, we need to know your power. We need to be convinced of it. Father, we 
understand our brokenness. We live in it day in and day out. Father, we need to know the unity that you bring. And Father, we want truth and justice to prevail. And we want your name to be made great. And Father, we want to find rest. Oh, we want to find rest. We want to find rest. And Father, we praise you that you have said that we find it in you. Father, as this summer approaches and as our families change, as graduations happen, as children move back and as children move away, and the ebb and the flow of the Robinsons and the Collins leaving and other families coming, and Father, the church growing, we praise you that you are so consistent. And we ask you in these next few minutes, would you give us rest for our souls? We have prayed it since the invocation, Holy Spirit, when we ask that you would come. And we pray it now. And Father, I ask that in your kindness, you would move the hearts of these women and men created in your image to drop their heads and to pray to you and to praise you that you are with us because you have promised to be because you are a God who chooses to be. Father, we ask that as we turn to your scripture, you would make it alive to us. Father, there is nothing that we can say to each other and there is nothing that we can drum up in our own hearts to make your word alive to us. Holy Spirit, you have to vivify your word and you have to implant it in our hearts and you have to make it bear fruit. But we praise you that those are the very things that you intend to do. And so, Father, I pray especially for our friends, the women and the men who are here today who do not yet know you. Would this be the day? Would this be the day, Father, of bowing their knees before you and confessing that unlike the lies of the world, they believe what you have said about yourself and how you have proved that truth in the cross of Christ once and for all. Father, we praise you for what you're doing, and we ask you to continue to do it. Bring unity, bring reconciliation, bring peace, bring joy. Father, richen our fellowship by the presence of your spirit. Would you lead us to your table by your word so that we would feast, so that we would feast in the house of Zion. Lord God, we praise you that you have proclaimed our forgiveness. And now, would you proclaim your truth over us with power? In Christ, your name we pray. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you. Um, you know that we're talking about the Corinthian church. Nathan has introduced them once. I have introduced them once to you, this small church that exists between Athens and Rome, this center of commerce, this center of ideas, this center of culture, and this center of influence and this church that has such hope and promise in impacting the world, wouldn't it be fascinating if you could date back the ways in which you know Jesus? And wouldn't it be fascinating if those threads wove through this church in Corinth? Because this church struggled with the culture in which they were in, trying to take aspects of the culture and allow them into their proclamation of the gospel. 
to take the wisdom and the strength and the power and the influence of the culture and to bring them into the church. And in so doing, as Nathan and I have said, they are distancing themselves from the message of the gospel and they're distancing themselves from Christ. And Paul points out this to them in a very generous and patient way. Not only does he call them brothers and sisters, saints in the Lord, he says. Not only does he remind them that God chose you, that's what we're going to look at today, but he tells them that we, he says, God made us. He throws himself in the lot with these Corinthians. God made us to be in Christ, the wisdom of God. That's what we're about to look at. It's going to be fascinating. But what Nathan started last week is one part of three things, and I've got to cover the other two. And it's the strangeness of God's work. It's the strangeness of what he does. Now, I didn't come up with that language. The prophet Isaiah did. One of my favorite passages in the, in the book of Isaiah is in chapter 28. And I'll let you go and dig it up in chapter 28. But in chapter 28, God talks about the rulers of his people and how they have made a covenant with death and how they have said to death, look, if you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. And he talks about the rest that his people have. And I wonder if it's anything like the rest that you ever feel like you have. Maybe the rest that you're having right now. You want to know how he describes that rest in chapter 28? As being in a bed that is too short <laughs> and covers that are too small. Isn't that an interesting way to think about it? It's so practical. My brother went to school at Vanderbilt, and I'll never, never forget. My mother was appalled that my brother couldn't even fit in his bed. He, they didn't have the extra long beds at that time, right? But think about sleeping in a bed that's too small and covers that won't cover. And you're just like, oh, even rest isn't rest. But then Isaiah says, but God is going to rise up, and he is going to do his deed and then he goes, and his deed is so strange. And then he is going to work his work. And he says, his work is so alien. And this strange and this alien work that the prophet Isaiah notes is what Paul is noting to the Corinthians. He has told them already that God has chosen the means and the method of the cross to save people. Christ crucified. He says to the Jews, it's a sign of weakness, and to the Gentiles, a sign of foolishness, right? You can listen to Nathan's sermon of last week. I've heard it's great. We will get it up. I promise everybody needs Jess back in our lives. We understand. It will come up. But he says of the message of Christ crucified, it is the power of God and both the wisdom of God to those who are called. And why did he say that? It was to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. He's not trying to destroy to leave destroyed, but he's trying to destroy to fulfill and to fill back in and to rebuild. This is because of the garden, right? Do you remember what Satan said to Eve? Did God really say you can't eat from that tree? Eve says, no, we can't. Or does Satan say, did God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And, and Eve says, no, he didn't say we can't eat of any tree. He said we can't eat of that tree or we'll die and we can't even touch it. And, and Satan responds to her with lie number one. He says, you're not going to die if you eat of that tree. And then what does he say? He says, God knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to now know the difference between good and evil, and you're going to be like God. 
He's implying that God didn't want something that was good for Adam and Eve, right? And what did Eve say? Eve said she looked into the garden and she saw that it was good to eat and she saw that the fruit was desirable for wisdom, for insight. And so she ate and gave some to Adam. Now, Adam wasn't out hoeing in the garden doing what he was supposed to do. Where was Adam? Silently standing next to Eve and not speaking up not telling the truth. The reason that God has come to destroy the wisdom of the wise in the discernment of the discerning, as Nathan preached last week, is so that we might see him clearly again. Because the Corinthian church had taken worldly wisdom and they had taken on worldly power and worldly influence and said, this is going to impact the gospel for us. And Paul says, stop. The second and the third parts is what you get today, that God chooses the people and God chooses the messenger. But again, Paul sits on this idea that the work of God is strange. He says the work of God is alien to us. Again, because he's destroying the wisdom of the world, the power of the world, the influence of the world by choosing the means of the cross. But here we see how he chooses also the people and the messenger. So go ahead and turn with me to that page in your Bible, page 952, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, and look at this with me if you will. This might hurt, but let's look at it together. Verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. And he says this. He goes, Look at yourselves, is what he's saying. In fact, that is what consider means. It means look at. He says, look at who you are, he says. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul says to the Corinthians when he's trying to shock them out of their use of worldly wisdom to judge him and to judge the gospel, To shock them out of that, he says, look at your shelves. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards or powerful or of high status is what noble birth means, well-born. Do you remember how the Romans had repopulated Corinth with soldiers and freed slaves? Not the highest of a society at that time. In fact, the lowest. But God says that he did this for a reason. And I want you to think about this with me for a minute. Look again at verse 27. Three things that God chose. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. God says that the reason that he chose this group of Corinthians, not many of whom were wise, not many of whom were, were, uh, were, were powerful or strong, and not many of them were of well, uh, well-born status. God chose them to shame the strong. He chose them to shame the wise. And he chose them to take what is considered not 
And in fact, those in society who are despised to bring to nothing those who think they are something. Those of you all who know uh, a little bit more about Christ the King Church Newton know that we love to call Psalm 62 our psalm. And in that psalm, it says, the poor are a breath and the rich are a delusion. That psalm talks about the real nature of human beings according to worldly standards. We are told that God chose this to bring to shame a group of people, the wise, the strong, and those who are. But then we are told one more thing before we apply this. We are told that he did that in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This church in Corinth was socioeconomically really diverse. There were more poor people than there were rich people. There were more who the culture would have said were weak than there were strong. But when we get to the conversation in chapter 11 of how the Lord's Supper was being abused, it is definitely the case that there were some very wealthy people in the church in Corinth. What is interesting is what do we do when we read a passage like this and we consider ourselves here in Newton and Wellesley, in this congregation, us? Did you know that of the adults that exist in our area, 26% of of, of people in our area have graduate degrees, right? Incredibly wise according to worldly standards. Incredibly powerful according to worldly standards. Incredibly well-born according to worldly standards. Why did God choose to act according to the cross of Christ with the crucified Messiah, why does God choose what is foolish in the world? So that those who cling to worldly wisdom and power and influence might be brought to nothing. It is not to destroy them, but to break them of their boasting. I heard this week a quote, and I tried to trace it back, and I didn't know the individual to whom it was uh, attributed, so if you want to know who it is, I'll tell you who it is. But I like the quote. I didn't know him. I didn't have enough time to research it, so I'm not going to share his name with you. But the quote is this. It's a really great quote. He says, there's a fine line between competence and arrogance, and that that line is called humility. Um. I actually heard somebody this week verbally pray that God would humble them. (laughs) Have you ever heard that? That's one of those things you go, are you sure you want to pray that? Hang on. You sure you want to pray that? Because this is exactly what that verse is about, about us being humbled in the presence of the Lord and about who the Lord chooses. I did put a provocative quote in the front of the order of worship today. Gordon Fee is this commentator that I've been studying, that Nathan and I have been studying, and that provocative quote does not say that affluent people, it it says rather that affluent people, it's not that affluent people can't be saved. 
It's that affluent people are shocked by whom God gravitates for and toward so that affluent people who usually spurn those folks might be humbled, might be humbled and shamed and quieted and realize God does not act according to worldly wisdom and power and confidence. I want to ask you, church, how are you being humbled as you consider the cross of Christ? Because the Apostle Paul is saying that to be one who understands the cross of Christ, it means that we must, we must boast in the cross of Christ and in that only. Now, to boast is not just to say, hey, man, look at how good I am. It does include boasting and pridefulness like that. But the boasting that the Apostle Paul is talking about also has to do with where you put your trust in. I trust in my wisdom. I trust in my strength. I trust in, in, in my good upbringing, right? And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, God is working among and choosing people to destroy human boasting, to put it to an end once and for all. And he says that in so doing, God unites us to Christ in verse 30. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ. And listen to how he describes Christ to us who became to us wisdom from God. You see, godly wisdom is completely different than worldly wisdom. The cross of Christ, a crucified Messiah, God making himself known through dying for us on the cross is foolishness according to the world and powerlessness to us. But God is saying, that is where you will know me. Wisdom of God, right there. He gives these three metaphors for the wisdom of God. The first one is one, he says, it is, he says in that verse, in verse 30, he says, and because of him or because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. And then he gives these three metaphors, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This idea of righteousness, that in Christ we have righteousness, has to do with forensic court of law standing before God. We are before God proclaimed in right standing before him because of the foolishness of the cross. We are made righteous before him. This idea of sanctification is holiness. It has a religious overtone. The first had civil, had, 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 uh, it had the court of law sense of an overtone to it. But holiness has to do with religious presence, of being in the presence of God, of being proclaimed as saints, as Paul has already called the Corinthians. Those set apart and those who are being sanctified, right? Paul says that in the very opening of Corinthians. He says Christ is that for us. He is our sanctification. And he is our redemption. And here in this idea of redemption, 
is highlighted this action which rescues us and sets us right, frees us from the bondage of sin. Christ is our wisdom. He is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. God is revealing himself in Christ. Do you need this? Listen, this is how I think I know we need this. What happens when someone comes to you and talks to you about the way you have sinned against them? What happens to you? Is it the same thing that happens to me? I become defensive. Listen, I've been here since the beginning. I'd be scared to death to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever seen me defensive. (laughs) I wonder how many of you could raise your hands. I've seen it, Bradley. I've seen it in you. You're so defensive. Listen, the reason I'm defensive is because I want to boast in something other than Christ. That's why I'm defensive. Church, look at me. It's why you're defensive too. It's why you're defensive. And Jesus came to break our boasting. It's not only that, but when we look at each other and go, how are we going to be made holy? Some of us have gotten to the place where we believe, yes, I know Jesus died for me. But when we really ask each other how we're going to change, what's the answer? If someone says, how are you going to change? How are you going to get better? What's the answer that you give? Come on. Some of you gave it to me this week. What are you going to do? I'm going to try harder, right? I'm going to try harder. But see, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is our sanctification. And you go, does that mean I don't try harder? No, that's not what that means. It just means there's no power there. The power is at the cross. It gazing upon Jesus. It's seeing God and his wisdom in Christ crucified and being changed, sisters and brothers. That's where we are changed. And it breaks our boasting. It breaks our confidence in anything in us. And finally, in this idea of redemption, this third metaphor, this action which rescues us from sin, You guys, what do we do when we're confronted with our sin? Okay, you're right. I can't tell you what all of you do. I can tell you what I do. I run and I escape. I find anywhere where I can go that my sin isn't front and center because I want to be free on my own and I don't want to depend another. But the reason that the cross of Christ is the wisdom of God is because there at the cross is our redemption. The act of God setting us free from sin by Jesus, the Son of God, dying for us in our place, defeating death and washing us clean and giving us rest. You see, 
Jesus chooses the foolish and the weak and the non-influential to break our boasting and to break our trust in ourselves, but he does not do that so that you are left empty. Because verse 31 says, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Scratch your head for a minute. I'm not gonna give you the second part of the sermon. Don't worry, it's not gonna keep going. I'm gonna end with this. It's already too long. I gotta get you to the supper so that you can actually praise God for what he's doing in your life. What is Paul doing? Paul is saying to these Corinthians, listen, you're distancing yourself from the gospel and you're distancing yourself from me because you're boasting in something other than Jesus. You want to be influential. You want to be wise. You want to be powerful. And in so doing, you're distancing yourself from Christ. Who needs to hear that today? But the Apostle Paul tells us that so that he can say, there is something you can boast in, though. You can boast in the Lord. Now, look, it's a footnote thing. You can go to it as quickly as I can. You can see where the Apostle Paul references this. It's Jeremiah 9. You can turn to it. You don't have to now. But if you want to this week, it'd be a great way for you to settle in Monday morning and go, do I really believe that stuff? And go back and read Jeremiah 9. You know what Jeremiah says? simply says this, the Lord is speaking. He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. I can't remember what the third one is. Let not the, oh man, righteous man boast in his righteousness. Maybe I can't remember what it says, but he says this, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands me and knows me. For I am a God who practices steadfast love and righteousness and justice. And in these things, I delight. See, the Apostle Paul is taking our eyes of ourselves so that we would put our eyes on Christ again. And that you and I would see in Christ a God who practices steadfast love in sending his own son to die for us, who practices righteousness in crucifying his Christ, and who practices justice in setting us free from our sin so that we would boast in him. The apostle Paul is fighting with the Corinthians. But this is a fight where he is loving them because he isn't stripping them of something. He's giving them what originally was theirs in the gospel that the Corinthians had been distancing themselves from. Listen, the the third part of this sermon is all about Paul. It's all about the messenger. It's all about seeing how Paul humbles himself But even Paul does that so that their faith might be rooted not in the wisdom of men. Listen, if you think you're a Christian because you're smart enough, because you're good enough and doggone it, people like you, 
you're going to get really frustrated when you realize you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, and not a lot of people like you. The reason that the Apostle Paul does this for the Corinthians is because he says, I want your faith to be rooted not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. The older we get, the more important it is that our faith is rooted here, isn't it? Because what we need is the power of God at work in our lives. And the Apostle Paul is turning the Corinthians to that. And in turn, we are being turned to it. I don't know what we'll do next week. We'll figure out what to do with the text, but I'm going to close so that we can get to the supper. Let's pray.